0: Since you have your copy of God's Word this morning, you'll be turning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 14 this morning. If you have uh, your place there, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Father, we ask for your help this morning, Lord. We know that we have a divine word in front of us, but we do not have divine understanding. Uh, This word says that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Lord, and so if you do not help us, to understand uh, that we have no hope of profiting from this word this morning. So Father, I pray that you would uh, use me uh, to my capacity and beyond uh, for the sake of your people today in the preaching of this word, that you would do your perfect work, and Holy Spirit, we are trusting in you to apply it to each heart uh, in the way that we need it most today. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is, Dinner is Ready. Dinner is Ready. Uh, In just a few weeks, uh, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving, which is a a holiday that we celebrate in November here in America. And when I think about a a feast, most of us have not uh, been to a feast similar to what's illustrated here in the story, so it's kind of hard for us to have a mental picture of what that's like. But the closest that I can get is uh, a big family Thanksgiving that our family goes to in Kentucky every year. Um, Rebecca's uh, family is very large, and so they have uh, two homes side by side in the same neighborhood that they host Thanksgiving in in November. And on average, I think most years there's somewhere around 30 children present, not including their parents, and it's just a huge uh, feast. And so a lot of people will come in the day before. Sometimes the ladies will have like a prayer breakfast where they'll get together and have a prayer breakfast in the morning and then they're doing their preparation throughout the day. And a lot of times the guys are catching up on things that have been going on throughout the year and the kids are getting to play with cousins and second cousins and maybe some people that aren't even blood related. Um, But it's just a a big event that happens uh, and it's exciting. It's something we look forward to. I already reserved our room at a cousin's house uh, this year so that we have a place to stay out there. Um, but it's just a big family gathering, and, and that's, so that's kind of the picture I have in my mind when he's talking about a marriage feast there. And so there's a couple things that I want us to see in this text, and as I begin to study this, uh, there's just way more than we can cover today uh, in the short time that we have. And I'm, so I'm going to kind of try to give some, some basic observations about the text, and then at the end today I want to give us some conclusions that we can come to to help apply that text. Uh, but there's a whole lot here. Uh, the thing that you'll find with, with parables is there's usually a pretty obvious meaning, but there's usually multiple layers of application to that meaning. And so as we'll see in just a moment, this parable, while it was given in a specific context, is just as relevant for us today as it has been for every generation over the past 2,000 years. And so we need to be uh, mindful to do what it says. So the first thing I want you to see in here about this dinner is that it's a scheduled ceremony. Look at verses 1 through 4. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." So there's two things I want us to see about this this scheduled ceremony here. I want us to see the the preparation uh, part of it. I want to see the patience part of it. First, with the preparation. Um, This king had already arranged uh, the marriage and this feast before the guests were first invited. So this was a feast that was prepared in advance. It was already part of the king's plan to do for his son. It was a, a customary thing to do before the first invitations were even sent out. Now, a wedding feast in Jewish culture, we have to understand, may be a little bit different than American weddings that you've been to. In a normal American wedding, you have a formal ceremony with a reception following. In Jewish culture, and in a lot of other cultures still today, uh, the celebration's much longer than just a couple hours in an afternoon, and could sometimes even go on for a week week, or even weeks, depending on uh, the ability of the father to provide for the guest. And so a lot of times a wedding could just be a week-long celebration where, again, family, friends, people in the community, everybody is invited. Come celebrate my son or my daughter's getting married. And and the expectation was is that the father of the groom provides according to his ability. So no matter how much money he has or whatever, he gives his best. So maybe he's a, a poor man and he only has one goat and it only feeds a few people. Well, he's going to do everything that he can to make sure that he provides the best for those guests that come in. So take that and and think about the fact that this is a king that we're talking about here. Uh, A king would be someone who owned an entire country, like literally owned it. It's all his property. He can take as many animals as he wants. He can take as much uh, food and drink and decorations and live music and dancing and Uh, has the nicest building to have the wedding in, you name it, he goes all out. And so if he's preparing this wedding feast for his son, we're talking about a celebration, like like a history-making celebration here. This is, whatever the greatest wedding you've ever been to would have just been small in comparison to the wedding feast that this king is putting on for his son because he has to give his best in order to uh, please the guest with what he's offering them. So the picture we have here is the king has he's scheduled this ceremony. He's prepared this feast, and he is going all out. Everything that he's got is going into the feast. It's the most glorious feast that we can imagine. And you'll notice that that the guests are invited twice here, and the reason why is because people didn't have watches. So you you would invite your guest and say, "Hey, uh, this week, you know, a year from now or whatever is going to be the wedding celebration." So you give everybody time to travel. Especially if you're a king, you're well-known. If this is your son, if this is the prince of the country, there's an expectation that all the important people in the country, all the influential people, all the wealthy people, they're all going to be invited, and they're expected to be there to show their respect for the king. And so they're all being invited, but you have to give them time to travel, uh, either by foot or by donkeys or camels or whatever their method of travel is. You've got to give them time to get there. So you get everybody there, and then you start the party up. And while the party is going... You're getting everything ready for the actual ceremony, but you're giving people time to come in if they get a little bit late or something like that. Then the second invitation comes, and the second invitation says, the table's set, everybody come in. So they wait for everybody to arrive and to be there ready to come in to sit at the table, and then that second invitation comes out. So they don't say, well, it's going to be at 3 o'clock today because there's no clocks anywhere. And so there was, no, there was no standard time for people to know to be there at that certain time. So the king's just saying, you need to be in the area so that when I send my slaves out to let you know that it's time, you're, you're right there and you're ready to come in and we're ready to get started. So there's this second invitation that goes out. And you notice the, the patience here. So not just the preparation, but the patience that there's this... A uh, General call to all to all of these people that's going out of I'm I am inviting you to come and be a part of something That's one of the greatest things you'll ever be a part of in your life This is one of the greatest experiences that you can if you're the wealthiest person in the country You're still not as wealthy as the king is so you can't throw a party as good as this You can't have music as good as this you can't have food as good as this there This is such a privilege to be invited to be a part of this wedding ceremony and so there's tremendous patience here of waiting for the guests to travel and to arrive and to get ready, waiting for all the preparations of the food. If any of you have helped with a wedding, there's always that anxiety of trying to get the food ready, and are the dresses ready, and did everybody get their hair and their makeup done, and uh, did you for, you know forget something important last minute? There's all that last minute preparation that goes into that. So there's this tremendous patience here where in the first invitation, uh, these respectable guests... Are unwilling to come, and so he sends out the second invitation hey it 's time. The table is set it 's time for you to come in and have a seat this The ceremony is is ready to begin so there 's tremendous patience there with these who didn 't come now let 's talk about the real story here. This is a parable, so there 's symbolism here, and as Pastor Chris pointed out very well uh, last week, we can 't take every single thing in a parable to be symbolic sometimes sometimes we just have to look at the big picture. Uh, Jesus isn't isn't being deeper with meaning in some ways but what we see this is the third parable that Jesus has given to the Jewish leaders about what's going to happen to them now and remember once he, once the triumphal entry happened and he came into Jerusalem he's not hiding anything anymore Everybody knows that he's the Messiah. He's saying clearly that he's the Messiah. He's saying clearly that God is going to judge Israel and that he's going to judge their leaders. And even with these three parables, this is the clearest of the three parables as he's beginning to unfold more and more and more to make it very plain to them what God is going to do to them because of their hatred for his son. And so he's unveiling that here. So what does this mean? This ceremony is the kingdom of God. This, this wedding feast is, is the people in the kingdom of God, and there is a general call that went out to Israel, where long ago, when God set Abraham aside, he sent out a call to all Israel and said, you are my chosen people, you, you are my respectable guest that I am inviting to my feast. And what he's pointing out here is, is that they were re- rejecting the feast, because The one that the feast is for is for messiah it's for christ and so if you reject christ as the messiah then you reject the feast which means you reject the king that's holding the feast and this is the point that jesus is making to them of guys this is your last chance this is your last chance to repent and to trust in me alone as your savior as your messiah if you will not receive me You've not just abandoned me as Messiah. You've abandoned God himself. You have insulted God by rejecting me. He's making this clear. But see the tremendous patience of the king here, who even though they were unwilling to come the first time, still extended that invitation to them. He still came to them and said, everything's ready. If you want to come, I still have a place for you at the table if you want to come. Sometimes uh, the excuses that are made here and the excuses that we make are, are just hatred in disguise. We think that rejection sometimes is, is uh, cursing someone or being hateful to that person. Uh, sometimes you can be just as hateful by ignoring someone or uh, disregarding something that they say or mocking them or gossiping about them behind somebody else's back. That can be hatred too. And so as he's going to explain here in just a moment, the excuses and things that they're making, uh, it's not really about the thing that they had to do, it's about their hearts. That they didn't love the king. They could care less about the king or his son or this feast or anything else because they were doing what they wanted to do. And Jesus is pointing out the same thing with the Jews here. You guys are so wrapped up in the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the political power and all this stuff that you've completely missed what it's all about. You've, You've missed it all. The wedding feast is this picture where Christ is united to his bride, which is the church. That's what we see happening here. And so because these feasts take weeks at a time, uh, the wedding feast takes time. So here, here's, here's something interesting that really, uh, i got to be honest with you, I want to study it more. And I know in talking with uh, Chris, we're going to begin to unpack this more as, as Matthew goes on. But really what Jesus is saying here is that the party actually began with his arrival on earth the first time. So we, we are in the party now. Uh, a, lot, a lot of times people look at a passage like this and they think, well, this is, when, this is the second coming of Jesus. When, uh, as we're going to see in just a minute, the second coming is the judgment that happens. The first coming is the beginning of that wedding feast where the invitation is now going out uh, to anyone who will come to, to fill up to fill up this wedding feast. There's room there. And so that's where we're at right now. And so we have to understand that the point that Jesus is making to them is, is that uh, you guys are, are looking ahead for God to create a feast for the Messiah, but what you don't realize is the party has already started. And you already had your invitation and you've rejected it. And if you don't come now, the invitation is going to be gone. You're going to lose your spot if you, don't, if you don't show up to the party. So we, saw, we see that it's a scheduled ceremony. The second thing I want you to see is that there's a scorn to call here. A scorn to call. Look at verses 5 through 7. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So first, uh, look at the distraction in, in, this, in this passage. So who are, the, who are these slaves that he's sending out? Well, we understand that the slaves that he's sending out were the prophets of the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, the apostles, our brothers and sisters under persecution now, and even us. So who are the slaves? They're the ones that are going out and sending out the invitation to these people. And so they're going out and saying, the king is prepared a feast for his son, everyone Uh, We want everyone to come in who's able to come in, and we're extending that invitation to you. So we are in this story. You are in this story this morning, 2,000 years ago, because you were one of the slaves that the king is sending out to let people know uh, there's room at the table for you if you will come. If you will come, there's a place at the table for you. What we see is the visible Old Covenant church, which we call Israel, uh, rejected God. They were the visible people of God. Again, as we've pointed out many times going through the Gospel of Matthew, if anybody should have understood this, if anybody should have seen what was going on, if anybody should have put the pieces together of the miracles and the teaching and the, the prophecy and, and the fulfillments and all these things, if anybody should have done that, it should have been the visible church, the people who say, We're the people of Yahweh. We're, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. The Bible is our Bible the scriptures, all these things, the prophets, that he's our Messiah because he's not for everybody. He's a Jewish Messiah at this time. They should have gotten it. And yet they rejected God. And how did they reject God? Not because they rejected the law, not because they rejected Torah, not because they rejected the temple, because they rejected his son. Now, I can, I can be friends with all of you in here. And and I can want to bless you and do good things for you and have a good relationship with you. But if you disrespect my son, if you if you act hatefully towards my son, are, we're not going to have a good relationship. You need to respect my son. You need to love my son. If you if you want to have a, a right relationship with me, and it's the same thing with God the Father. Even today, the Jews want the benefits of the covenant without the Messiah of the covenant, and God has not left that as an option for them. That is not on the table. You either accept Jesus and all of the Bible in its fullness, or you reject all of it. And so that is the place where Israel is at this point. Uh, One commentator pointed this out. You do not have to murder a prophet to miss out. You have only to fritter away your time on things that will eventually pass away and thus let your opportunities for repentance and faith pass by. Now, you may be sitting in here this morning, and I look around, I think everybody here just about is a church member or a child of a church member, okay? So if you're a member of our church, you have to have a credible testimony of faith in Christ in order to be a member of our church. So you may sit here and say, well, I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm born again. So if this is about people coming to Christ, then this doesn't really apply to me because I've already done that. But notice notice what that commentator says you fritter away your time on things that will eventually pass away and thus let your opportunities for repentance and faith pass by believers you need to understand that repentance and faith is not a one time thing that happens now granted there's a point where we're converted where we're born again sure and we're born into the kingdom of god but re- repentance and faith is a lifestyle that we have it's something that continues on it's one of the wa- it's one of the ways that we have assurance of our salvation if you're if you're Unsure of whether you're saved or not, ask yourself uh, how often you repent. That, that's a good indicator that you're saved because unbelievers don't repent. That's not something that they do. So why do we come to church every week? Why do we get involved in the growth group? Why do we try to learn through a Sunday school class? Why do we uh, get pastoral counseling if we need pastoral counseling? Why are we going out and doing evangelism? Why, why do we do any of this? The answer is Exactly what this commentator is saying is we don't want to fritter away our time doing meaningless things and let opportunities for repentance and faith pass by. There, there's a lot of parallels between this text and, and why we observe the Lord's table. And I talk about this a lot because for me growing up as a Baptist, it wasn't a big deal and nobody ever talked about it. But it's in the Bible a whole lot and it's in history a whole lot and it's, it's more important than a lot of people give it credit for and one of the reasons why we come to the table every single week is because we don't want to let an opportunity for repentance and faith to pass by. That's that's really what it comes down to is. Anything that God says, church, I will bless you if you do this, we need to do that and do it as often as, as we can do it. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss any of God's blessings, not even one. I want to receive all of them. I want to have perfect repentance. I know that I can't in the flesh, but I don't want to be like the, this group was of saying, I've got work to do at the house. I've got to go to my farm, or I've got to go work on my business. I'm sorry, I don't have time to come to your feast. There's a lot of people that do that in churches all around here on Sunday morning. You can go out here right now during church hour, go up to the grocery store and ask people, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a member of such and such church. Well, Why are you not there right now? Oh, because I had to go do something on my farm, or because I have some business to do. Exact same excuse. And then what do they do? They do what this commentator said, they fritter away their time for opportunities for repentance and faith. Oh, so you're saying that whatever you're doing right now instead of being in the house of God with the people of God worshiping God is more important than that. That there's something that money or your possessions or your business is going to do for you that you cannot receive from God. That's the that's the excuse that's being made. And so here in 2021, it's the same thing that Jesus is pointing out in this parable. Everybody's got something better to do than to worship a holy God. And so we have to be careful. Uh, this is the reason why things like church attendance, it's not like we're going through church attendance and making a record and trying to zap people because they missed a Sunday. That's that's not the issue. The issue is, what's the excuse? Okay? if a pers- If a person is physically unable to attend church or some kind of emergency happens... We all understand that. We've all been in that position. Everybody in here, there's times where that happens. But we see a crisis uh, in, in our community right now. I, I can ask any of my pastor friends, hey, name the people in your church that just kind of like show up whenever. And they can tell you exactly who they are. And they're known in the church. And the problem is, is that they're, ju- they're just like these people. Because they'll say, well, I love the Lord. I'm not hostile to the Lord. I just don't make that a priority. I'm not hostile to him, but, but but like, remember what we said just a moment ago, you don't have to be hostile to be hateful. So if you are not for him, then you're against him. And he is worthy of the time that, that we spend, and he's worthy of, of the energy that we spend, and and being a high priority. Uh, your boss has never done anything for you that's close to what Christ has done for you. Your bank account has never done anything for you. You're investments or whatever you name, the, the, the amount of your time and energy that God has purchased in Christ is 100%. You have nothing left to give to anybody else. And so we do those things because God has commanded us to be in the world and to glorify him in doing those things. But our priority is not those things. And it's easy for us to forget that. So there's a scorned call here where they're distracted by all kinds of stuff. And we have to be careful, even as believers. For the, it's easy for us to look at this and say, for the unbeliever, stop making excuses to not come to Christ. But even if you're in Christ, you can still make excuses to not come to Christ. You cannot come to Him in prayer. You cannot come to Him in worship. You cannot come to Him in a variety of ways, even if you're in Christ. And so we have to be careful that we don't scorn that call that He gives us. This is one of the reasons why we have met in person and we continue to meet in person. Why do we do that? Is it because we're anti-science people? No, it's not because of that. It's because we have a call. We are called to worship. And that call to worship is a higher priority even than my own life. It's a higher priority than my own life. That's the reason why we're here this morning. So we see distraction, but we also see destruction. It says the king was enraged by what they did to his slaves. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Now, it's, it's hard to imagine standing there when Jesus is saying this. He's in the temple. It's in public. There's people everywhere. These teachers are coming up to him who are the experts on everything. And like I said, at this point, they know. We, we know from the last parable, they started picking up what he was laying down in the last parable. They knew he was talking about them. Now he's really unpacking it. There's no mystery here. He's telling the guys that he's talking to right now, you're murderers. And not because I said so. God considers you to be a murderer of his people. And he's going to destroy you and he's going to destroy your city with fire. This is, this is a, a very blatant harsh judgment of jesus on these men that he's talking to uh, again he was he was not pulling any punches he was not trying to not get crucified at this point when you say something like that you're trying to get crucified if you want to make these people angry you tell them the god that you say that you represent in your and that you serve that same god says that you're a murderer and that he's going to destroy you with fire and he's going to destroy this whole city with fire There is no greater insult that you could give to these men than to say uh, God is not pleased with you when everybody else says God's pleased with you. When you walk around and and puff your chest out and I'm so spiritual and look at how much I keep the law and look at how much I give and how much I do this kind of stuff. And for the Son of God to say, God says that you're a murderer and that He's going to destroy you. It's hard for us to understand what that condemnation would have felt like, the sting that this would have had for him to say this. And he doesn't soften it. He doesn't use a word like, you know, he's going to punish those sinners. or he's No, you're a murderer. That's the word that he uses. You are a murderer. There's not a whole lot of worse things than you can call somebody than a murderer. So what is he talking about here? This is where it starts getting interesting. Because we have to know our history to understand... What he's talking about Jesus is not talking about hell right here it would be easy to think well of course the wicked are going to be cast into hell the whole world's going to be destroyed by fire that's what he's talking about that's not what he's talking about here because you have to remember in the same story he's talking about right now because the party already started the party has already started in time in this story and so this part of the story is also in that same time frame so what does he mean when he says He's going to send his armies and destroy those murderers, the the Jewish leaders, and set their city on fire. Well, most scholars agree that he's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which is 40 years later, after the time that he's preaching this, roughly. This is not talking about hell. This is talking about the, the entire city of Jerusalem was destroyed by fire. Uh, historians say that at that time in AD 70, when, when Titus came in, Uh, and destroyed Jerusalem by fire, that over one million Jews were killed during that destruction. Uh, Here's a quote from Josephus, a historian who who wrote about what had happened. He said, One of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window, when the flame arose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews, now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. So the temple was destroyed by fire. Jerusalem was destroyed by fire. The emperor Vespasian said, there's like four towers that are high towers that I want you to leave so that we can use them as guard posts, and you're allowed to leave the western wall, which is what we still have today in Israel. He said, everything else burned to the ground. Kill everybody, burn everything to the ground. I'm tired of dealing with these Jews. That was, that was what happened in eighty seventy. 70 So Jesus here is prophesying, and he's saying, listen, you've killed the prophets. You won't kill any more of my people after my son. So after they killed the son, that was the final judgment, just like we saw in the last parable, remember, in the vineyard? What happens after they kill the son? Then the judgment comes. Then the judgment comes. Of My, my son was the last chance that you had. Once you lost that chance, you get no more chances. It's just judgment. And Jesus is saying the same thing to to them. Because you're disrespecting me as Messiah, because you have killed the the slaves of of God, his servants, God is going to destroy you with fire, and he's destroying this whole city with fire so that there's nothing left of Judaism. There's no more temple ministry. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more atonement. There's no more priesthood. There's nothing. And and to, to this day, it's still nothing. They have Torah. They have, they have obedience to Torah. That's all they've got. God took all of the rest of it away. And so we see the fulfillment in history shortly after Jesus proclaims this. Uh, he, brings this he brings this to pass in AD 70. So since the Jews rejected their Messiah, God's offer of salvation, as we'll see, now extends to everyone who believe. It, it, he's not just the Messiah of the Jews, but he's the Messiah of anyone who will come to him, as we're going to see. And so you're a part of the story too, because you may be in here this morning, and you're considering your own salvation. You need to know that salvation is offered to you. It's offered to everyone. We need to, we need to make sure we remember that. Our job is not to decide who's saved and who's not saved. Our job is not to decide who will and won't respond to the gospel. We have no control over that. But just as we see in the text here, the, the offer goes out to everyone. So let's talk about that. The third thing, a selected crowd. A selected crowd in verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So who are those people in the story? Well, those are the apostles. That's the early church up to the present day, and that's you and me. This is our job. This is our spot, is we're part of this. uh, we're, We're bringing together this selected crowd. We're going out into the main highways, and anybody that we find, we're inviting them to the wedding feast. This is what we do. Somebody at work, our neighbors, somebody we run into at the grocery store, whatever the case may be. Hey, did you know that there's a wedding feast? Did you know that there's still some seats available? Would you like to come to this wedding feast? That's when we talk about sharing the gospel, that's what we're doing. But did you know that there, there's this amazing feast? It's greater than anything you can imagine, and even though you weren't originally invited, there's actually a spot for you. Would you would you be interested in, in coming to this party? This is essentially what we're doing when we're proclaiming the gospel to people, that Jesus died so that you can have a seat at the table. So we see a mixture here with these people. Augustine uh, said it this way. He said, The Holy Scriptures teach us that there are two feasts of the Lord, one to which the good and evil come, the other to which the evil do not come. So then the feast of which we have just now heard when the gospel was being read has both good and evil guests. All who excuse themselves from this feast are evil, but not all those who entered are good. So he points out here, uh, and Jesus points out in the passage, that as we invite people in, well, what group are we inviting them into? We're inviting them into the church. This is what we're inviting them into by, by salvation that that's always going to be a mixture of good and evil because we can't see hearts. So when people come into membership in our church, and, and as Baptists, we believe in regenerate membership, so somebody can't just like sign a piece of paper and join our church. We want to, as much as we can tell, discern whether this person is actually a Christian or not, but even doing that, we cannot do that perfectly there are people that will come into church membership that maybe uh, it's like the parable of the forest soils. Maybe there's some really good fruit at the beginning there. You see some life and some things going on and it gets kind of like choked out and fizzles out and then they just kind of walk away or they decide that they don't really believe anymore or they decide that they love their sin more than they love Christ or whatever the case may be, that's going to happen. And, and we can't stop that from happening. We're not the Holy Spirit. We can't change people's hearts. We can't see... Uh, the new birth inside of a person, and we can just tell from what we see on the outside. And this is what Jesus is saying here. Our job is to go in and invite, right? Invite, invite, invite anybody who will come. And if people will profess faith in Christ and they'll come in with a credible testimony in the church, then we welcome them in. But we do that understanding that we're going to get a mixture of people in doing that. It's not, gonna, it's not going to be perfect because we cannot do things perfectly the way that God does. So the visible church, right? When I say visible church... Just to make that distinction, you have a visible church and an invisible church. The visible church is what we see. That's our church membership. The easy way to remember it is our Barberville Baptist membership list is the visible church. The roll-up yonder is the invisible church. (laughs) That's the easy way to remember it. Now, we want those things to be as close as possible to each other, but again, we're not going to do that perfectly. There There is a Lamb's Book of Life that the names of the believers are written in, and we can't see that book right now. So we can see fruit that might indicate that that person's name is there, but we can't see it for sure. And so only God can perfectly discern uh, who is and is not in Christ, ultimately. We do the best that we can, but uh, we can't see into a person's heart. So the invitation is still going out today in 2021. Jesus has not returned. The invitation is still going out. The garments are ready to put on. The garment is the righteousness of Christ. We're going to talk about that. The garments are ready to be put on, and the king is coming to check the guest list. So soon the groom is going to arrive. So the fourth thing I want us to see, a separate confinement, a separate confinement. Look at verses 11 through 14. But when the king came in and to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So he's talking about an, an imperfect people here. Uh, Augustine points out again that this man represents a whole class of persons of whom are many, he says. He says, So in the visible church, there's a mixture of the saved and the unsaved. We can't see who they are, but this man represents that group of people. So how do we tell in the visible church, when we look at our church membership or any church's membership, how do we tell for sure who's saved and who's not saved? Well, the way that we tell is, is that the king is going to come and he's going to look out and he's looking for the wedding clothes, the garments. And if somebody is, in, the, is in, the, in this wedding feast and they don't have the wedding clothes on, they're going to get kicked out. Uh, another way that Jesus illustrated this is called the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember, they have, they have, they're similar in appearance, but there's tares that were sowed in among the wheat. And what does Jesus say at that time? He says, don't try to separate them because you're going to harm some of the good wheat in doing that. And in the end here, uh, we cannot perfectly discern who who and who who should and who should not be in the church we can't perfectly discern that but the reality is is we understand we understand that that's just a part of, of living in this world is that uh by god's grace we will see many brothers and sisters come into this church before jesus returns um but we will also see some who are not truly converted come into the church some of them may leave some of them may disqualify themselves from being in the church but some of them may remain and there's a possibility that when the Lord returns and he's judged, uh, many of us will see each other there, but there'll be some people that we won't see that we thought we would. And, and that's a sobering thing for us to consider that Jesus is, is pointing out here in this illustration. The, the garment is the righteousness of Christ. It's something that, that we have to put on. Uh, we put on Christ. And so when he looks out, again, notice the, eye, the covering language. A garment is something that you put on. It's a covering. In other words, it's an atonement. It's a covering that is placed on you that protects you from the wrath of God. The wedding clothes are a covering that's put on the guests that protects them from the wrath of the king. This man wanted to stand before the king in his own garments, in his own atonement, in his own covering, and was rejected and cast out. Now, Before, we talked about how destroying the murderers and setting the city on fire, there was an immediate application with that, with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But notice the language that Jesus uses in his story. Where is the man cast? Into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The only time Jesus uses that sentence is with reference to hell. So he is talking about hell at this point. He's saying there is a time coming where the king is going to judge whoever is covered, is protected. Whoever's not covered is going to be bound and cast into hell. That's the illustration that, he, that he's going to make there. And what is he saying to these Jewish leaders? You guys have made your own covering. You think that you can stand before God with this own garment that you've made that you think is acceptable wedding clothes, but it wasn't provided to you by the king, and the king, will not, the king does not accept it. He finds it disgusting, and he doesn't want it in his house. This is, this is what he's saying to the Jewish leaders. All your righteousness, all your religion, all your everything that you put on as a covering of this makes me right before God, when he sees that, he will be disgusted by it and he will cast you out into hell. And so we have to have a, a perfect righteousness, which is something that has to be given to us. It's not something that we already have. So in conclusion, the, part, the party has already started. So here's a few things that i want to give you to take away from this of just thoughts in light of everything else that we've looked at the first thing is that everything that the church does today including our church including barberville it points to this fulfillment that jesus is talking about we understand that in the old testament hebrews tells us that everything was a type and a shadow of things that were to come it was a picture so that when Jesus did come and do those things, they would have a picture to associate it with. Now, of course, they didn't, but we do now. We can read the Old Testament now on the other side of the cross and clearly see all the times in the Old Testament that God was pointing to the work that Jesus was going to do and was revealing his plan. But the cool thing is is that that continues on because we're not at the end yet. So even now, as the church, there are things that we do that have not received their, their fulfillment yet in Christ. What are those things? Church membership prefigures election. So think about this. God has a chosen people. Uh, We cannot do any of these things perfectly, but one of the reasons why we have church membership is because it is a type and a shadow of God's election. There are people in the community that we do not consider to be a part of our church because we do not believe that they're Christians. And there will be people on the last day that are going to be excluded from the wedding feast because they were not invited or they did not accept an invitation to be at the wedding feast. And so the church membership, a lot of people ask, well, how is church membership biblical? Well, this is one of the ways that it's biblical is that it is a picture to the world, the outside world and to the inside of the church of what election looks like. God has a people. So Barberville is a people. We are a family. We are a uh, in a sense, we're almost a, an ethnic group to ourselves. We have our own culture. We have our own music. We have our own worship. We have our own religion within ourselves that we have. We have our own culture. And some church membership shows the world, uh, we may all look different and have different backgrounds and, 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 and have differences, but we're not, what we have in common is that we're not like anybody else in the world. We're only like those that are in Christ. Church Discipline prefigures judgment, so again, we, church discipline is not perfect. It does not always work correctly, but it prefigures judgment. What does that mean? That means that whenever the church exercises discipline against one of its members, when the members exercise discipline against another member, it is a type and a shadow of exactly what Jesus is saying here. There is going to be a time where God himself is going to come through and sort out the wheat from the tares. so this is a picture. that we're we're doing, that's imperfect, and yet it finds its fulfillment in the judgment of God. Baptism prefigures resurrection. There is coming a day when we will be raised from the dead. Everyone, the good and the wicked will be raised from the dead. Uh, For those who are in Christ, it's a wonderful thing. It's our hope that we will be resurrected. For those who are not in Christ, it's a terrifying thing that uh, whatever suffering they experienced so far was... Uh, not enough, that they have to endure even more. So baptism prefigures resurrection. This is the reason why we baptize by immersion as Baptists, right? Why do we put somebody all the way under the water? Because it symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection. You can't do that with pouring, sprinkling, things like that. You don't get the same symbolism for it. This is one of the reasons why we do that. When somebody comes up out of that water, okay, there's nothing magical happening to that person spiritually, but it's a type and a shadow of, I will see this person again on the last day. Because them coming out of that water symbolizes the true resurrection that's coming whenever Jesus returns. Communion prefigures consummation. So remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper? I will not drink this again until I drink it in in the kingdom with you. There's There's coming a day where we're in the party now. All the guests are arriving. They're getting ready. Uh, the invitation is going out. Hey, the table is being set. And we're going to be sitting down at the table. This morning, we're going to be sitting down at the table. And you know what we're doing? We're waiting for the groom to arrive. That's what we're doing every week. Maybe this week. How, imagine how awesome it would be if this morning, right before you get ready to take that little bit of juice that comes from Ingalls, that's not magical juice. Imagine if Jesus himself just walked in. And just, and just picked one up and just joined us. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, it, it's just it, it's more than we can even imagine, and yet that's exactly what he said he's going to do. There's going to come a day where we're going to gather together in communion, and Christ himself is going to come and be there with us. And that's a beautiful thing that we can look forward to, and that's one of the reasons. Why not celebrate that every week? Right? Right? Maybe this week will be the week that he comes. We don't know. Maybe it's next week. But we're going to be ready for him to join us whenever he's ready to join us. We are inviting people to something good. This is something we need to remember. Uh, hell is real, judgment is real. God is going to judge everyone, and he's going to judge them according to his law. But we are not inviting people to run away from hell. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't don't suffer. That's, that's not the message we're getting to people. Is your life hard? Come to Jesus. Or, you know, are you struggling? Are you in poverty? Are you sick? Are you will Come to Jesus and you just won't have any problems in life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is inviting them to something good. Yes, you need to know your state. You need to know that you don't deserve a seat at the table. Nobody does. But that's not the good news. That's the bad news. The good news is there is a glorious wedding feast. And there's still seats open. And if you want to come, I I have permission, I have it on authority from the son himself to offer you an invitation to this meal. We have to remember that we're giving people good news. That takes some of the fear out of evangelism, right? You're sharing the gospel. What if this person rejects me? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the invitation to the party. That's their loss. That's their loss. But what are we inviting them to? I'm inviting you to the best party that there's ever been to. You can go to whatever you think is fun or celebrations or family gatherings or whatever. That doesn't hold a candle to what I'm inviting you to. You really don't know what you're turning down. So it's not just God's going to judge you, you're going to go to hell when you die. It's you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing. So we're inviting people to something, something good. We should not presume upon God's patience. God is very patient, but he's not patient forever. And we see that in this text. There is coming a day when that judgment is going to come. And when you think about that family member right now, when I I say, uh, who's the first lost person you think of? You're going to have a family member or a friend or somebody that's going to pop into your mind, okay? When you wait to invite that person to the table, you're presuming upon God's patience. You're assuming that God is going to be patient a day longer and that that person has another day. We can't do that. We can't presume upon God's patience. We don't know when that's going to run out. The the, the clock is ticking down. And we don't know what that clock looks like, but it's there. And we shouldn't assume that we have all the time in the world to share the gospel with people we love. Uh, We need to do it now. We have work to do. And we can't have excuses. You see the response that he has to people that had excuses. We can't say... I can't do this thing or I can't be involved in this or I can't talk to this person or I can't do whatever because it's inconvenient for me or it's uncomfortable for me or because I'm too busy. You can't do that. Your job is not going to exist when Jesus returns. Your bank account is not going to exist when Jesus returns. Your friends and family are, are not going to be consequential when Jesus returns. And so we've got to give it all we got. We have to work while the sun's up. The sun is going down when no one can work. That's what Jesus said. And so, uh, we're gonna have to sacrifice. We're gonna have to do hard things uh, to reach this community. It's going to cost us a lot in every way to do it, but name one thing that you can make a better investment in with your time and your energy and your resources. There is nothing, it's all gonna burn up. So, lay up your treasure in heaven, as Jesus said. Finally, we we need to be who we are in Christ. Who are you in Christ this morning? You're clothed. You have the garment of righteousness. So walk in that. The the sin that you're dealing with, you you deal with sin because you believe that you have to. That's what it comes down to. Sin has no power over you. It was destroyed. Uh, Do you know who has authority now? At the end of this book, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples so on what authority can you say i will not sin in that area on what authority can you say i have the right to invite this person to the wedding feast you have it on the authority of christ the one who the firstborn from the dead the son of god has given you personally christian the authority to renounce your sin to walk in holiness to serve him to to exercise the power of the Holy Spirit and your spiritual gifts into the church and to, and to see Waynesville saved. You have the authority to do that in Jesus Christ, and we need to remember that. There is nothing that can stand against us. Remember a few weeks ago? We, we are the rooters up of mountains. We are. How do we do it? By prayer. So there is no obstacle in front of you that cannot be removed that would hinder you from preaching the gospel this morning. And so walk in that. Believe that that you are free, that you're empowered, that you have authority from God to do the ministry that he's given you to do. In closing, uh, Galatians 3, 23 through 29. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now faith, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Father, we ask this morning that you would Prepare us for this feast, Lord. Uh, this earthly feast that we're about to take here at your table that just looks forward to that, that day when, when Christ himself is going to be there with us, serving us as he served the apostles. Lord, what a, what a humbling thing to think that Jesus himself would break our bread and give it to us as he did the apostles. Lord, what a blessing. Uh, how humbling it is to to think that the Son of God would serve us. Lord, I just pray this morning that uh, we would be a church that is about the business of preparation, that we ourselves would be ready for your return, that we would be excited about the resurrection, that we would be proclaiming it to those around us, Lord, that we would not take advantage of your patience and your long suffering any longer, but that we would get to work and that we would fill up your house, fill up this house right here uh, with guests for the wedding and that each week, Lord, we would be bringing more and more people to your table waiting for that final feast when you return. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen.